Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, would you bow with me? Lord, we, we thank you for the truth of that song, that your blood will never lose its power. That the sacrifice that you made once for all covers past, present, and even future sins for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you are our advocate, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding even now for your people. God, for everyone who has turned from sin and called upon the name of the Lord in faith, God, we thank you for the truth that there's salvation there. And God, we pray this morning that as we dive back into Acts 15, you would help us know how to apply that truth as we live together as your family. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 15. Acts 15, beginning in verse 19. If you missed last week, that's okay. I'm going to bring you up to speed in a couple of sentences. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 15, a question emerges. And the question is basically this. Do, do these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these uncircumcised people need to convert to Judaism and follow certain Old Testament laws like circumcision in order to be saved and be included as full members in the church of God? And the answer to this question is a resounding no, right? They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to, you know, not wear cotton polyester blend or avoid shrimp. Uh, they don't have to do those things to belong to the people of God. Why? Because they're in Christ through faith, through faith in Christ. Jesus is Savior. Salvation is Jesus. Full stop, period, end of sentence. You're in Jesus. You're in the family. Jews and Gentiles have the same problem, it's a heart problem, and God offers the same solution, and his name is Jesus. Not Jesus plus, just, just Jesus. Isn't that good news? Now, last week we were pretty critical of those who came from Jerusalem down to Antioch to question the gospel and to try and add something to the gospel. It's easy and right to be critical of them for that. However, I want us this morning to appreciate what they got right. What they got right. Here's what they got right. They understood that salvation includes joining God's people. They were wrong about what had, had to happen in order for you to belong to God's people, but at least they got it right that to be saved is not for you to be an island unto yourself, living out your faith solo, separate from God's people, but to be saved, rather, is to be saved into a family. Are y'all with me? Like, you were outside of God's family, and to be saved by God is to be brought into his family. It's to go from being alienated from the people of God, to use the Bible language, to being adopted into God's family. If you are saved, you get a new family. 
And that family is called to be one in Christ. And the reality is, as, as we know, if you've been around church life long enough, you know our unity in Jesus. It's very real. We're rescued and saved by the same blood. It doesn't magically suddenly give us all the same perspective on everything that is permissible or preferable or, or best in the Christian life. I mean, some of you still like, I don't know, UVA. Which fortunately has nothing to do with our salvation, amen? But, but we don't all come to Jesus and suddenly have the same political views. We don't have the same views on uh, personal finance and how to manage that best. And, and the reality is, while we're one in Christ, we have to pursue our unity in Him until He comes again. And so that requires the work the constant vigilant work of extending grace to one another as we strive to live out this unity that is supplied to us by the blood of Jesus. So last week we saw grace contradicted, and then we saw grace defended, and then we get to the therefore in verse 19, because we are one in the blood of Christ, because the Old Testament told us that Gentiles would join the one people of God, James in verse 19 says, therefore, and we're going to read the therefore, you ready? All the way to, down to verse 35, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses, meaning the Old Testament, has, been, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. We're going to read the letter, verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The Jerusalem church recognizes in this letter that salvation is entirely by grace 
And then they extend grace to their brothers and sisters. And they lay a foundation that's going to help them walk together in unity despite their differences in cultural background. And, and I think we learn some lessons, almost some steps, for how it is that we can walk together in unity through this passage because we, we affirm it's all of grace. It's all through the blood of Jesus. And in affirming that, how then can we be united in our walk with Christ on mission together? And the, the first thing I want to show you from verse 19 is that we should not, we must not trouble our brothers and sisters with demands that are unrelated to our shared life in Jesus. I, I made a joke about UVA earlier. That has nothing to do with your walk with Christ, right? We don't require that you support one college or another to be a member of North Roanoke Baptist Church. Verse 19 begins with that, Therefore, because salvation comes through the grace of Jesus, and because the Lord promised that the Messiah would open a path into the temple of God's presence for Jews and Gentiles alike, James gives a judgment. We might, as Baptists, think of it like a motion in a business meeting. The elders have met, the lead elder has come to a conclusion, and then we see later the church voices their amen. He concludes, as Peterson writes, submission to the law through the act of circumcision can't be demanded by Gentiles who are turning to God by believing in Jesus. Rather, Jewish Christians have to recognize the freedom of Gentile Christians to live a life determined by Christ and the Spirit, not the demands of the Mosaic law. James's judgment in verse 19, do you see it? Is that it is time to stop troubling the Gentiles. You know what that word trouble means? It means to annoy or to pester. You ever been pestered by somebody? It's like poked in your shoulder. Stop it. That's, that's, that's what James is saying. He's, he's like, Look, we have got to stop bringing up stuff that doesn't have anything to do with their salvation in Christ and that really undermines their, their walk with Christ and undermines their confidence that Christ is enough. The grammatical structure of verse 19 in the Greek suggests that James has had it up to here with this debate. He's like, I'm over it. It's an unnecessary pestering of our Gentile brothers and sisters that diminishes Jesus. It detracts from their walk with Jesus. It promotes unnecessary division in the family of God. And I am over it. My judgment is that there should be no more troubling of Gentiles who turn to God. Preach the gospel. Let people hear the gospel and repent and believe on Jesus and celebrate Jesus. Jesus saves. Now, the reality is this morning, none of us are walking around insisting on circumcision or that, that you don't eat shrimp or that you don't wear a cotton poly blend. But, but the question I have for us this morning is would we insist on other things that don't have a dime's worth, make a dime's worth of difference in your walk with Christ? Do we have any traditions or preferences that we hold so tightly or cherish so deeply that we would put them ahead of being united with our brothers and sisters in Christ? How about this one? I, I could only attend a church if they have that program. Or if they ever take away X, I'm gone. Is this on? How about this one? I could never worship in a stuffy old sanctuary. Or the reverse. I could never worship in a, in a modern gym. 
or under a mango tree with my brothers and sisters in Africa. Brothers and sisters, these sorts of statements don't come from a heart that is overflowing with the love of God. These, these statements don't come from a heart that is full of grace and willing to extend grace to our brothers and sisters. In fact, these sorts of statements are a warning light on the dashboard of your spiritual life. You ever have a car and the light goes orange or red? It's a big, bright warning light, warning sign. Well, I could never worship over there. I could never sing that song. That's a problem, church. It's a sign of a shallow commitment to biblical unity and the sanctification that God brings to our lives through fighting for unity. What does it mean to take up your cross daily if you don't have to take up your cross daily? To be united in the blood of Jesus is going to take sacrifice on everybody's part. It's going to require you to die to self daily for the unity of the body. As Bloom writes, it's a strange logic. In Jesus, we are already one. But we're not yet one. So we must achieve, maintain, or restore our oneness until we finally attain our perfect eternal oneness. We're one in Christ. We're really going to be one in Christ when He returns. And from the oneness that we have now to the perfect expression of oneness that we will enjoy later, we must fight for unity. Man, I'm I'm excited. Y'all excited? This is important because we've lost this concept in our church. We're like, you know what? You like hymns, you do hymns. You like contemporary, you do contemporary. You like Virginia Tech, have a Virginia Tech church. You're you're a Republican, have a Republican church. It's not in the Bible. Now, if if James was a pragmatist rather than a pastor, you know what a pragmatist is, right? Just do what works. Who cares if it's really right? Who cares if it really reflects the heart of God? As long as it works and keeps the peace and makes people happy, then why ruffle anybody's feathers? But James wasn't a pragmatist. He was a pastor. And pastors aren't pragmatists. They're theologians. And they aim at the heart of God rather than what works and what doesn't ruffle feathers. Now, we don't exist to just ruffle feathers for no reason, but we pursue the heart of God. And when you pursue the heart of God, people are going to get upset about it. James was a pastor. But if he had been a pragmatist, what would he have said? Well, now that we all know salvation is entirely by grace through Jesus, let's just roll with Jewish churches over here and Gentile churches over there and just do our own thing until Jesus comes back. We'll have first church, first Jewish church of Antioch and first Gentile church of Antioch. And then the Gentiles, well, the Gentiles will figure out well, we're not all the same either. So we'll have cowboy church and motorcycle church and contemporary church and Republican church and Virginia Tech church. And we'll splinter and subdivide into every little interest group that we could possibly have denying the unity that Jesus bought with the blood of Christ. We're not doing that at North Roanoke. We're going to be one people on mission for one Savior who saved us, so help me God, because I'm not a pragmatist, I'm a pastor. The world needs to see that the same Jesus who can put the sinner in communion with God can put hard-hearted, hard-headed sinners in communion with one another. He can do it. It's hard, it's not easy, 
but it is wor- our king is worthy of it. The judgment of James is that it's time to stop pestering the Gentiles over nonsense. But his judgment is not complete. Verse 20 begins with a but. It's a word of contrast. While we are all about the gospel and our freedom from sin, death, hell, and the grave, it doesn't mean we are free to live godless lives or to live with no regard with our brothers for our brothers and sisters. So freedom in Christ doesn't mean do whatever you want to do. doesn't matter. So step two in verse 20 and 21, we have to break with idolatry. We have to willingly limit our liberty for the sake of our unity in the church and our witness in the world. This is step two to pursuing godly unity in the family of God. While, while, neither, Gentri- excuse me, while neither Jewish nor Gentile believers are saved by law-keeping, Jesus changes our idolatrous hearts, doesn't he? He begins to make a change in our life. We, we stop worshiping self and we long to live for the Savior. We stop worshiping our stuff and we worship the one who came to save. Those who are in Christ will seek by the power of the Spirit, Galatians 6.2 says, to fulfill the law of Christ. We will seek to keep ourselves from idols, 1 John 5.21. And the reality is many Gentiles had been saved by Jesus, but they had lived in cultures that were absolutely saturated with idolatry. The hallmarks of idolatry were everywhere they went, and Jews understandably struggled with the idea that they had people in the family of God who were engaging in activities that seemed to condone idolatry. A Gentile might just be hanging outside of a a temple to an idol enjoying a nice steak, understanding that the idol is a giant nothing burger. God doesn't even exist. I get it. I've been saved by Jesus, but this steak is awesome. And a Jewish believer might walk by and begin to think all sorts of things about what they are accepting as tolerable for someone who's been rescued by grace. So in, in verse 20, what does James do? He doesn't tell them to keep all the Mosaic law not eating shellfish and all those other things. He doesn't mark some food as clean and some food as unclean. He just says, would you abstain from the practices that are clearly associated with idolatry? Like, not even just for Jews, but like everybody around recognizes this is associated with idolatry. That's really going to help the Jews to have a deep fellowship with Gentiles. Furthermore, it's going to protect the church's witness to Jews who haven't been saved yet in places where Moses has been read in synagogues on every Sabbath for generations. Do you see that in verse 21? So have you ever heard somebody say, you know, there's a reason that I don't do X or Y, and there's two reasons. One is for my brother or sister in Christ, that it might harm my fellowship with them. And the other reason is I want to be a a light for Jesus. I want to be a witness in the world. I don't want somebody who's lost to look at my life and then go, oh, Well, Jesus clearly doesn't make a difference in their life because they're doing that. Both of those arguments are in this text. Jewish believers needed to embrace Gentile believers, and Gentile believers need to recognize the barriers that practices associated with idolatry presented to their fellowship with Jewish believers. So in verse 20, what does James tell the church to do? 
he writes to the Gentiles and urges them to abstain from four things. Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what's been strangled, and from blood. Scott Kellum says this, The four items that are prohibited are each a part of common pagan temple worship. These terms should be considered as four separate pagan activities in the venue of pagan temples. The pollution of idols means the practices commonly associated with idolatry, and as we see in verse 29, especially eating that which had been sacrificed to idols. Avoiding sexual immorality. You're like, hold on, I thought that was like for all people in all times. You're right. But in this context, it most likely refers to either temple prostitution or interfamily relationships, which were not forbidden for Gentiles, right? They're forbidden in Mosaic law, but not for Gentiles. Something strangled refers to how animals were killed for ritual sacrifice. And blood most likely refers, as Kellum writes, to the ritual drinking of blood. While idols are not real gods, participating in practices closely associated with idolatry could hinder the church's witness to Jews, it could offend the consciousness of consciences of Jewish believers, and it could hinder the fellowship that Jesus died to secure. So Gentiles, here's what, here's what James is saying, just make a clear break with idolatry. We beg of you. The whole Old Testament is, is calling, God is calling out a people to worship the one true God. Don't live like you can mix the worship of the one true God and idolatry. Paul writes in Excuse me. Now, in matters that are not as clearly an endorsement of ungodly behavior or idolatry, Paul addresses these things in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 14. And he, he cautions us in two directions, right? One, he cautions us about being the sin police. Just walking around looking for somebody to condemn. Oh, I caught you yesterday. Pretty sure that was a cigarette in your left pocket. Right? He, he cautions us about condemning people, just looking to condemn people on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he cautions us about doing anything that would cause our weaker brother to stumble. It's an interesting mix to hang together, to hold together. Paul writes in Romans 14, 20, Everything is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Do you believe that? It is wrong for me to make one person stumble by what I eat. Those saved by the sacrifice of Jesus will sacrifice for the joy and the clear conscience of those saved by Jesus. Church, I'm just going to tell you, I don't abstain from alcohol because I have to. I cannot find a command in Scripture that says I can never let alcohol touch my lips. I do it because in our context... It might lead a weaker brother to stumble, or it might lead a lost person to assume that Jesus hasn't changed my life. My brother's walk and my witness in the world is eternally more important than the beverage I drink while downing a nice slice of Frank's pizza. And if you haven't had Frank's pizza, you're missing out. Peterson says this. He summarizes Paul's teaching on this. He says it's more about the venue than what's on the menu. I love chicken wings. Anybody like chicken wings? 
I love them. The hotter the better. Snot running everywhere. I don't think anybody in here has a problem that I like chicken wings. If, I, if you do, we can talk later, and I won't eat chicken wings around you, I promise. But you know, if I went to a restaurant with an owl as its logo to get some good wings, suddenly you might have a problem with me eating chicken wings. Y'all here? It's less about what's on the menu and more about the venue. Yes, we are free in Christ. We are free to live for Jesus and free to stop making it about us. We cannot do some things so that our brothers and sisters can have deep fellowship in the gospel because we come from very different perspectives and backgrounds. So the church in Jerusalem emerges from this debate with a firm confidence in two directions. One, that salvation is entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet also a commitment that Jesus makes us holy. He makes us different in the world. And he, they emerge also with a commitment to be a community characterized by holiness so that God's people could live together with clean consciences and a confident witness in the watching world. But how in the world is Antioch going to know about any of this? Verse 22 through 29. What they do? They wrote them a letter. The church shows us that it's good to communicate about these things. Like, if you don't like that I like chicken wings, if that's somehow causing you to stumble in your walk with Christ, then please tell me. And so often, we just don't talk to one another. And I'm so thankful for a church that shows us that we have to lovingly communicate about how our behavior relates to our unity. You see that in verse 22 through 29? They, they talk. The Jerusalem church doesn't keep their conclusions to themselves. In, in these verses, we see the consensus of the whole church. Verse 22 is to send this letter to the Gentiles. James has made a judgment that the entire church embraces, and now they communicate it to the Gentiles. And once more, we have this pattern, right, of church leaders leading and the church consenting. In verse 25, the letter mentions that the church is of one accord. The church didn't decide God's will in this case. They discerned God's will. They discerned God's will how? By applying the word of God to their present situation. Unity without the word is worthless. But unity driven by God's word and facilitated by his spirit who gives us the mind of Christ when we endeavor to come together in unity is powerful. The church sends the letter to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas along with Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Why do they send these other guys with Paul and Barnabas? Why not just send Paul and Barnabas who had come from Antioch? They're signaling the unity that they're asking for in the letter. These guys who are a part of us are with your leaders in this decision. And the first point of the letter is that Jew and Gentile are all united in Jesus. They're all saved by grace. And then in verse 24, you look at verse 24. I love verse 24. Hey, you know those guys that came down and questioned your salvation? We didn't send them. You see that? Why, why did they say that? Because they wanted them to know that these guys had not gone 
with the authority or the authorization of the Jerusalem church. There's a lesson for us here. That it is the local church that holds people accountable so that you don't get lone rangers going off and entering into a church and making a mess of the gospel. Interestingly, we just dealt with that this morning here at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Thank you for those who've been a part of it. These lone rangers, these these people who stepped out of church accountability, stepped out of being commissioned by the local church, they brought a message that threatened the unity of the church by denying the central truth of the church, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Once the major theological error has been addressed and salvation by grace has been affirmed, the letter turns to the issue of behavior, of holy living. Did you know that we've been saved to live for God? We've been saved to live holy lives. We've been saved to be distinct from the world. We're not saved by our deeds, but our deeds and the perception of those deeds in the watching world impact our unity. Don't miss that. It is an act of grace to talk about what we do. It is an act of grace to talk about what we do. In many churches, as soon as you mention guidelines relating to behavior, as soon as you call someone to a standard, people start calling you all kinds of names. Do you know that? Well, you're just a legalist. You're just a Pharisee. You're just a control freak. The early church didn't see it that way. They didn't see a conflict between talking about salvation by grace and talking about how we should behave as the people of God. Much of the content of the New Testament is about our behavior in Christ. If we just assume that we're all on the same page, we're giving Satan a wide open door to bring division in our church. So the letter concludes what? With a request. A request from the leaders of the Jerusalem church that the Gentiles abstain from those practices that were dishonoring to God and upsetting the consciences of the Jews. And here's the gist, the gist of the letter in, in Daniel Palmer version. To be saved, you only need Jesus. Y'all know Jesus and we know Jesus. We're on the same team. However, since we're on the same team and you care about your team members... It'd be super helpful if you would know, if you would, you know, worship God wholeheartedly and not worship idols. That's it. We don't need you to adhere to our customs, but it would be really helpful for us to know that you are following God. It would help us to see that you love God. Church, God makes us new through the gospel so that we would live together for him. And that means we have to talk about what we do. We don't need to micromanage every detail of every person's life, but we do need a biblical framework. It's why churches have church covenants that members agree to live by. It's why we should talk to one another about those things that could otherwise unnecessarily divide us. It's why we should expect church leaders to give generously and participate regularly in the congregational worship gathering. It's why we should talk about what our shared lives in Jesus look like, lives made possible by the gospel. None of our behavior can result unless we've really been changed by the gospel. So look at what happens here in verse 30 and 35. After the conversation about behavior has been had, what do they return to? A conversation about the gospel. I I love this. It's like a big gospel sandwich. 
People come down denying the gospel in Antioch. There's a big council in Jerusalem. They make some decisions. They send the letter back to Antioch. And and what is affirmed in this letter is the gospel. And and what happens in Antioch is they're so refreshed and encouraged to to know that it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. Only reason we talk about behavior in the family is, is for the glory of Jesus. And so, step four, we've, we've got to be refreshed and encouraged in the gospel which unites us. We've got to be refreshed and encouraged in the gospel which unites us. I, I love that they send the letter and, and they gather the congregation. The whole church is gathered in verse 30. And, and what happens in verse 31? They, they called a business meeting. And they followed Robert's rules of order to the T. And, and they, they heard the letter read. And they didn't even have to take a vote. The unanimous recommendation of the church is that they accept it. How do you, how do you see that, Pastor? Look, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They read the letter and they were like, yes, it's Jesus. It's about Jesus. Isn't this amazing? We agree. It's Jesus. The church, doesn't, the church doesn't resist getting on the same page with their Jewish brethren. They, they don't say, you know what, we've got to hold on to idolatry and the practices of idolatry, thank you very much. They say, we're in Jesus, you're in Jesus. That, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. This is a great opportunity to live out the united gospel-driven lives that Jesus died to produce in his people. And how is this unity possible? It's possible because God kept his promises in the gospel. Judas and Silas, who were called prophets in verse 32, begin to show us this biblical transition of prophets who tell the future to just people who proclaim the truth of God's word. What do they do? They encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Some of you think this sermon's getting long. This is nothing compared to Acts 15. They preached a lot of lengthy sermons. Eventually, Judas and Silas depart in peace, meaning with the blessing of the church. The church is united in the gospel. They're living out their oneness in Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas just keep on preaching the gospel. And notice, I love verse 35, along with many others. You say, why do you care about that? Because the preaching ministry is multiplying. More people are being called up to be pastor, teacher, elders. More people are being gifted and equipped to so understand the word that they can proclaim the word to others. And there's just this community that is centered around the word of God, which is the gospel of God. I really wish I could have been there for some of those sermons, don't you? I mean, you talk about a a conference that would have been good to go to. I wish I could have gone to that conference. I suspect that they were drawing the line between the Old Testament and Jesus over and over again. You know the son that was promised in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of Satan and reverse the curse? He's Jesus. You know the prophet greater than Moses who leads us not out of just slavery, any old slavery, but slavery to sin and death? That's Jesus. You know, the everlasting king of Israel, the king greater than David, the king with no sin, who is also a high priest, a priest who leads believers, Jews and Gentiles alike into the presence of God forever. He's Jesus. 
And he's not just a, a priest who offered any old sacrifice. He didn't offer up the blood of bulls or goats or lambs, but he offered himself so that the price of human death could be paid and life everlasting for all who trust in him, assured in his resurrection. This is Jesus. Church, Satan tries to stop the mission by undermining the gospel and destroying our union in Jesus, but he's failing. He's even tried it today, this morning, but he is failing. We are family through the blood of Jesus. We might look a little dysfunctional at times. It might be hard to get on the same page sometimes, but we are family through the blood of Jesus. We need to look at one another like family. That person that said that thing or had that glance that, that offended you or hurt you, it's time to run to them and be restored. We're family through the blood of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of our oneness. We are one, not because we are Americans, but because we've been adopted by the Father and Creator of the universe. We are one, not because we're Republicans, but because we've been reconciled to the Father. We are one, not because we're Democrats, but because we've been declared righteous through Jesus. We are one, not by the style of music we prefer, but by the substance of the gospel that we proclaim. We are one, not because our kids are in public school, but because we're going public for our King. We are one, not because our kids are homeschooled, but because our homes are filled with the gospel. We are one, not because we've had a part of our body cut off, but because we've been cut to the heart by the overwhelming sacrifice of Jesus. We are one, not because of our blood relationships that we or may, not, may or may not have in this church. We are one only through the blood of Jesus, shed for all who belong to him by faith. Church, we're nothing apart from Jesus, absolutely nothing. But in Him, all things are possible. Even a church, despite our differences, delighting in grace and graciously living out our mission until He comes. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Would you pray with me? And our deacons will make preparations for the Lord's Supper at this time. God in heaven, help us to live out this text. Help us to delight in grace and extend grace to one another. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for your atoning sacrifice. And we thank you as we, we prepare to consider the Lord's Supper, God, we thank you that, that though we have many differences, if we have partaken of Christ by faith, if we have partaken of the, the body and the blood of Jesus, that the sacrifice is ended, that our salvation is secured because that grave couldn't hold you. On the third day, you raised up to give life and life everlasting, true life to all who trust in you. God, we we thank you for the truth of the gospel, and we pray you would give us your strength to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org. 
or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.